0: sort of all this do you is there ever a typical is there ever a typical writing day I was wondering if almost does, if writing is a way to kind of is the constant amongst all your different sort of it's like.
1: well I think uh, one of the good things and bad things about being a journalist is you don't really have sympathy for writer's block so you would sit down and type any old you know um, so I think having a word count every day is not a problem Um I find that I can write best between 6 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock. So between the first four hours of the day are when I generally um, uh, write uh, most uh, productively. And then I can edit what I've written during the rest of the day. Again, I think journalism makes you sort of... I wouldn't say cavalier, but you have a, a certain healthy disrespect for your own output. So you you then can be disciplined about... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, bringing some order to that output. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I write a lot, um, and I tend to write, uh, I would say probably the first draft of a novel would take um, six weeks to eight weeks, um, and then I will go back, obviously, and take another six to eight weeks to edit it. Um, and my yeah my comfort zone would be four to six months to, to complete the wow. manuscript and I would write a lot I mean three thousand to six thousand words a day would be probably uh, normal and I would edit those quite uh, quite radically um do you have to write? Are
0: you one of those writers that
1: if you, yeah. if you haven't done it for a bit... Yes, I, I feel absolutely um, guilty and as if what is the purpose of anything. Yes, I do. And as soon as I've finished one, I feel the need to start on the next one. What, what I do and have done, and I don't know whether this is good or bad, and this might really not... This might speak negatively to what I produce. I mean, I do go back and rewrite entire novels in different ways and as i mentioned i've written 11 novels and they've all gone through fairly they've all evolved Mm. significantly and i've gone back to manuscripts after two or three years and completely redone them um so i'd like to think that's because i'm you know an inspired perfectionist but i think that maybe because the originals
0: weren't that great (laughs) Right. Do you find your writing change at all if you're, you, when you are under kind of pressure of whether it's deadlines, but you know just the, the just the kind of conditions you describe in, in the longest winter of Brad working with bombs falling outside, with the knowing that there are other people after the story. Just when some... I was
1: in Sarajevo, I was working for a wire service, and uh, that is uh, famously formulaic and soul destroying, uh, and involves a certain way of. Uh, uh, of, of packaging the story so that it can be uh, cut up and it can appear in a newspaper in South America as a four column story and it can appear in a newspaper in Asia as a one column story so you can easily segment the pieces I found that quite difficult to do but in a sense that um, that was a discipline and it was also a non-stop conveyor belt of stories. There was never enough, and as soon as you'd finish one, you had to write another one. And then in among the daily reporting, you had an opportunity to do a feature, and the feature was where you were allowed to spread your wings a little bit and write something human and so on. And there's a, um, there's a, a, a part of uh, The Longest Winter where... Um, it takes place at the Children's Song Festival mm. and that was actually that was one of the features that I wrote um, uh, when I was working for the wire service I, think, I don't think I ever worked harder than when I was in Sarajevo and again that was because it was easy to do because the, the impetus was there every day um, and because I did feel gosh you know I mean this is not a joke and I really have to be serious about this and, and do it as well as I can um, whether uh, it, the, the wire service um, technique definitely affected the way of writing but not permanently um, I think the volume of work was such that when I went back to Sarajevo in um, February 1993 or beginning of March ninety three, and then I wrote the first draft of The Longest Winter um, in a way I was kind of liberated to write my own thing then so I really appreciated it I was sitting in a very cold room only able to use the laptop when the electricity was on which was a few hours every day and you never knew when it was going to stop and I was able to write all of the things that I had not been writing about when I was working for the wire service so that was that was actually quite liberating and and I, you know I really enjoyed being able to to do that but I was <clears throat> I was doing then what um, I did uh, subsequently, which was right, you know, three or four thousand words uh, in in one sitting. Did you ever
0: hesitate about returning? Uh,
1: No. Um, uh, My girlfriend at the time, who subsequently became my wife, came to visit me in in hospital in Glasgow, and I no, I had absolutely no doubts. That, in fact, the opposite I had from being in the place I more than anywhere else in the world wanted to be doing a job that I was utterly consumed by and feeling very, very uh, comfortable in my skin. In the space of 72 hours, I was in a hospital in Glasgow, unable to go to the loo at the end of the the, uh, ward. That was catastrophic. That was quite traumatic. So when the opportunity to come back uh, arose... um, Oh, I, no I didn't, in fact I, we had to argue to get on the plane to get back into Where there was a French military aircraft taking, um, in fact that's also <laughs> described in the in the story um, uh, no we had to persuade them to let me on because I was in crutches and I had you know, plaster and everything um, And I, I, again I don't want to sound gung-ho, it's just that that was the natural place to, to want to write this book and um, Uh, my girlfriend at the time subsequently became my wife so I mean obviously there was a very strong impetus to um, stay together or we would have been in an awkward situation because I would have been on one side of the siege line and she would have been on the other and that would have been uh, very difficult In your
0: subsequent work it sounds like you've become in addition to being a writer and journalist, you've also worked in, in perhaps more political or, or more sort of activist... The work you've been doing about missing persons, you, you were I think, for a, for a politician writing speeches uh, around the time of the, the peace accords. Is, is that an extension of what you do or something you keep slightly... No, I think that's an extension and I think, again, hopefully not
1: sounding pretentious, it was an opportunity to... Um, make a small contribution to Reconstruction, having witnessed the destruction. Um, so I worked uh, for several years for the Office of the High Representative, uh, which um, Paddy Ashton was the High Representative for several years, is the office that's responsible for implementing the provisions of the Dayton Peace Agreement. And um, that was, for me, it was illuminating. I you know, got an opportunity to see politics at uh, first hand, and it was in many ways very creative and it was related uh, in a fundamental way to covering the conflict because, again, all of these issues uh, have still to be resolved in Bosnia and Herzegovina and that was part of an effort to do that. And more recently I've worked for the International Commission on Missing Persons and there um, there are uh, 12,000 people still missing and if you can imagine what it's like, it's, it's horrendous if A member of your family is killed, and you have to go and collect the body at the hospital and take it for burial. But imagine what it's like when the member of your family simply disappears. They go out of the house one day and they never return, and you do not know what happened to them. It's it's an open wound. Um, How do you go about locating a? I mean, that must well, it sounds. There there has been a huge and successful effort um, to do this and it involves a combination of uh, different elements. One is simply uh, witness testimony and there have been cases where people who were involved in crimes learn that they've um, got lung cancer and they've got six months to live and feel as if they have to um, get their consciences uh, clear before that happens and um, give uh, protected testimony. So they'll testify on their... They will not be... uh, Or they will have some sort of arrangement in the manner of their giving testimony where um, testimony can be facilitated. Um, Other cases uh, involve uh, satellite uh, photographs, for example, where um, you have very clear... um, Indications that a large part of land close to an area where something terrible happened has been dug up and then covered up and then dug up again. Um, in Srebrenica there were cases where the primary graves were dug up with bulldozers several weeks later and then the bodies were moved to uh, secondary and tertiary graves in an effort to hide them. And satellite pictures can show where the the earth has been dug up. Um, in that case, uh, one of the main difficulties was that when you use a bulldozer to um, excavate a mass grave, you break up the bodies. And then, if you, you, you there was one case where the same body, uh, parts of the same body, were found in five different graves, um, 70 kilometres apart. The only way that you can uh, reconstruct that skeleton is using DNA, uh, and that's been done in Bosnia and Herzegovina in a major way since 2000, and it's been enormously successful. And that's made it possible to identify the missing from Srebrenica. And I think essentially the element here is it's one of uh, justice because when you don't have a body, it's very hard to prove a crime. So uh, accounting for the missing in Srebrenica, for example, has been central to the effort to bring the perpetrators to justice. Also, it means that uh, families can bury their loved one. They can know with some certainty uh, that their loved one is dead and they can uh, then um, bury the remains. And in Srebrenica, for example, there are uh, around about 7,000 graves and each of those graves is a named and identified individual it's not, it's not like a memorial a general memorial to all those who, who died in Srebrenica it's a, it's a graveyard in which families have been able to go and with appropriate dignity and appropriate rights and bury their loved one and that is um, something which uh, means that people cannot deny that the crime took place and there's a lot of Genocide denial, just as there was with, the, or there is with, the Holocaust, um, it means that um, you have the possibility of justice, and it means that you have the normal human capacity to go through grief without this terrible uh, ambivalence or ambiguity about what might have happened to your relative.
0: And is that is that I, mean, I was about to ask you? Is there a kind of ambivalence about putting this? For- Families through that again, even if it gets them to a point. No, no.
1: I think. I think the other thing is, I think the putting through families again. Um, there is always an argument that says, "Come on, it's a long time ago. Let's let's move on." And you can only say that if a member of your family hasn't disappeared. Right. And I, I think every single one of those people, I, the testimony of people, um, uh, you know, the sort of simple accounts of what it was like to bury a relative are enormously moving and uh, no, uh, I think that actually is the opposite, it gives those people uh, something which everyone has a right to, which is to grieve in the normal way Um, and then, I mean, the other remarkable thing is that the women of Srebrenica have um, reached out to women from other communities and astonishingly you have encounters which political representatives have not been able to uh, to replicate uh, where uh, people are able to, to 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 sit with one another and be as one in their experience and there are cases where you know people say look i i can only go as far as we will sit here i am not going to talk about this i'm not going to we're not
0: talking about forgiveness and so on and so forth. So these are the Windows these meeting people that would have been responsible for killing.
1: And um uh, uh no, people uh meeting uh, people who've also lost, oh, also uh, lost relatives. Sorry. Okay. Um and in some cases people uh, have remarkable uh, uh affinity. I mean they, they will the you know in fact the, the some of them will be at this conference on Wednesday. Um they become, you know, incredibly close friends. Um, and as one lady said uh, recently, she said, "I'm I'm not friends with her because, uh, despite the fact that she is from that community, I'm friends with her because she's from that community." That's how we have been able to engage. Um, and there are other cases where people will say, "I'm not going to be like that. I cannot just be cuddly and friendly." But I'm sitting here, and 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 we are going to sit here together. And one respects and admires that with the same. Um, it, you feel the same admiration for that because the person is saying no, I'm, I, this, it's not as if it's all finished but I'm doing everything in my power to come as close to you as I can and I can come this far um, and uh, so yeah it's, uh, it, it's an experience which is, it's a, a phenomenon which is tremendously moving uh, and in which again you very often see people showing remarkable grace uh, and dignity
0: what's new now has there been the same kind of sense of any kind of national resolution or is...
1: No, Uh, unfortunately it's a little bit um, the first five years after the war there was a huge amount of physical reconstruction and that was made possible by about five billion dollars of international aid and basically a lot of the destruction was rectified uh, the next five years after that, you had considerable uh, political progress and really the prospect of the country living up to its potential. The last ten years has simply been a huge disappointment, I would say regression, and uh, it has not um, it's not become the country that a lot of people fervently believe that it could become. What's, what do you think has happened? Um, it's Basically it reached a point where it seemed to be good enough and uh, when that happened there was a sort of systematic and understandable international disengagement and uh, when that disengagement took place uh, the political stakeholders who were fastest on their feet were the most unscrupulous and possibly the dimmest uh, and uh, we have seen uh, basically a new political establishment that's very unimpressive and um, I would say fundamentally corrupt. So that's not been positive. Uh, having said that, I must add that Bosnia and Herzegovina is uh, incredibly beautiful. Um, it has not been spoiled by mass tourism for obvious reasons. <laughs> so it's also unspoiled in many ways. It 's a wee bit like um, people have discovered the north coast of Northern Ireland as being fabulously beautiful, and when you go there and stay in a bed and breakfast, they love it that you came because ah. of the beauty and not because it's uh, because of the troubles um, and Bosnia Herzegovina, just like that, you know if you go to visit as a tourist they 're just so pleased that you've come and though you know uh, they will assure you there's so much to see that's wonderful
0: but the last thing I think we began by uh, on mm-hmm. by, by saying that the the kind of fault lines that have been opened up have never been healed again. There,
1: no, they haven't. And uh, the Dayton Peace Agreement set a lot of those fault lines in stone. Unfortunately, um, at the time of the agreement, people, at least the people I spoke to, just wanted the war to end, and it ended the war, and it has maintained the peace. And in that respect, it's been a very positive thing. However, it also it institutionalized a lot of the communal divisions. Um, so that we have uh, three members of the presidency, you have rotating uh, prime ministers, you have um, uh, multiple uh, governments in different parts of the country, all so as to accommodate different communal aspirations. Um, That has uh, institutionalised demarcations based on community. Uh, It's also horrendously inefficient and open to corruption, um, so those things have been very negative, and every taxi driver you get will tell you the first thing: "I don't hate anybody." You know, there is still this mantra that uh, nothing against anybody, but. Oh.
0: <laughs> but is it home for you?
1: Um, yes, I, I, yes, absolutely, um, and uh, Spain is also home. I, I there are three places in the world where I love to go for morning walks. One is Glasgow, one is our small village in the southern part of Spain, and the other is Sarajevo. And that's
0: psychologically where home is, I think. <laughs> oh well, I think I just want to thank you very much for spending so much time talking about this wonderful life.
1: Thanks very much, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really-